Take your Bibles and turn to Colossians chapter 2. We are looking at verses 15, I'm sorry, 16 through 23. There are my notes updated, so it has everything I thought I was going to say. I'm not even going to call them small celebrations anymore because they're just, they're just too big to call small celebrations. But let me tell you what God did this week, and one thing that I forgot to tell you last week. Uh, the first day of November is when we send off our, uh, our money that came in for the Georgia Barnett offering for state missions. Our goal this year was $4,000. You gave $4,033. So we beat our goal for Georgia Barnett. That is always something to celebrate. Uh, looking at our uh, October attendance in worship, October was our second highest attendance month, average, second highest attendance month since pre-pandemic. The only other month where we had more on average was April, and that was Easter Sunday. So there's a, a bit of an, I won't call it artificial bump, but we don't maintain that Easter Sunday number. If you take Easter Sunday out, uh, then October last month was the highest attendance we've had since before the pandemic. So that's not a small celebration at all. That's a big one. Two weeks ago, in our business meeting, y'all voted unanimously to support and fund our first church plant. According to my research and the historical records I have, our first church plant since 1945. The last time our church voted to sponsor a church plant was Houston River in... Well, in 1945, 60-something years ago. Is that 60-something? That's 80-something. Nearly 80, right? That's math. Anyway, it's a big deal. Uh, and then to show you, to give you an inside look at what goes on during the week and, and what we, uh, the, the roller coaster ride of emotions, as well as decisions that have to be made, particularly uh, when it comes to the rebuild process, we, you know, we asked for your help to uh, skin all these bleacher blocks so we could prepare them for new carpet. And y'all were great, and you came out on a Saturday, and a number of you came out throughout the week and skinned about uh, half of them. I think we're a little over half now. And then Tuesday morning, in the middle of our uh, staff meeting, I got an email for how much it was going to cost to put carpet back on all those bleacher blocks. And I don't mind telling you, that was $25,498. Works out to about $373 per bleacher block. Well, I threw up my hands in disgust and said there went that, and if you're on Facebook or, uh, and or the Faith Life app, we put out a, hey, don't bother coming, some stuff's come up, don't, don't come skin any more of those bleacher blocks. So uh, we, we brainstormed ideas in the staff meeting and over lunch and Wednesday and then Thursday I went and talked to Daniel, the project manager, and just told him how much it Well, he knew how much it was because he had sent me the, the bid and just talked to him about it. So I just don't know what we're going to do. There's no way. We're thinking maybe we can do a few of them to serve as the seating. They're going to serve as the seating for our kids' tables in the sanctuary. The carpet that's going on the stage is going to be the same carpet that's going on the bleacher blocks. So it would serve as that if we needed risers, like for the upcoming high school choir, we might need some risers for them. 
We could use the bleacher blocks for that. They would blend in various places in here. Just we, we all know how useful those things are. So talking to Daniel, and, and he said, ah, yeah, I just don't know. And, and toward the end of our conversation, I'm, I'm going to do his, the motion that he did and, and the look he gave me. He went, call the insurance adjuster. That's exactly how he said it. It was basically, I've told you to do this before, and you didn't, because he has, and I hadn't. Call the insurance adjuster. Claim those things. I said, okay, uh, but we threw away like 40 of them or something like that right after the hurricane because they were so moldy and so nasty. So I sent this long email to uh, the insurance adjuster Thursday night about 8.30 uh, while I was wanting to watch the Colts and somebody play. Instead, I was working, doing email, and send, composing this email. I'd taken pictures. I showed him uh, some pictures from the gym when we had them set up here and how they served as bleachers and said, they're this size, they're covered in this, here's the bid to carpet them. We got rid of this many, this is how many we have left, on and on. I said, we, uh, they didn't in, get put into the contents, uh, into any of the claim back a year ago. They weren't, for whatever reason, the, the folks who were doing everything just kind of passed them by. Can we add that to the contents? Send. 7.45 the next morning, got an email from the adjuster. No problem, we'll add them. And I was, I was all, I'm thinking, are you sure? I mean, did I read this right? I read the email. It was like one sentence. I'm not, my, my reading comprehension is actually fairly good. And I was still reading that one sentence. And so I wrote him back and I said, okay, that, all, that is great. Um, can you tell me how much it will be, how much we'll get for them, so I'll know that we can afford the carpet to, to put back on them? And then after a few minutes, I, I emailed him again. and said, I don't even care how much it is. Can you just tell me that, Whatever we get will cover the carpet. And 30 minutes later, it will not be a problem. Your carpet will be covered. <sighs> and then I rebuked myself for my lack of faith. And, and y'all, I'd take up days if I, if I told you every little story like that of, of how things happened and things we didn't think we were going to get and we did get and things we were concerned about. And, 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 and turns out it was different. I'll tell you one more, and this one even in my notes. The soundboard uh, that we have in the sound booth now, and number one, it's half the size and does five times the things of, of the last one we had or something like that. And we had a brand we, we had in mind. John had to talk to Chewy, the guy who's uh, the, the contractor for the audiovisual and lighting, and said, we want this brand. You want this brand or this brand? And John said, let's get this brand. And we liked, liked that one better. Well, that brand was back-ordered for months. We wouldn't have it anytime soon. So Chewy said, well, let's, let's do, we'll do this other one. And went, oh, okay, it doesn't quite have all the stuff. It's a little, it's the same, but just a little different. Well, I think he said maybe two weeks before they ordered the board. This company, what is it, John? Midas? I think so. Yeah, Midas is the company they updated and upgraded all of their software and all of their boards. So suddenly this just a little bit less board became a little bit better than the board we wanted. We didn't plan that. We didn't know that was going to happen. That was just God doing things that we weren't expecting. So those are our celebrations. Let me, tell you, let me give you the bad news and the good news then of one more thing. A survey uh, was done, and, and it became public fully November 1st. Um, I read an article about it a week before it came out, though. According to a new survey, 
uh, of the number of people here this morning, only, and, I'm, I'm, and this is a percentage, but we have about 100 people here, only 13 of you who are here this morning give 10% tithe to the church. That's, that's the average. That's, that's the, this, according to the survey, about 100 people here, 13% of evangelicals tithe, 10%. Uh, the average giving, actually, though, among evangelicals, so the average percent of, your, of the income that is made in this room, the average giving to churches is 2.4%. So, on average, if we took all of our income and it was $1 million combined, we all give $240,000. Is that right? Did that work out? 10% of a million is 2.4% is of a million is 240,000? Okay, yeah. All right. Um, No. $24,000. That's right. Yeah, thank you. I didn't think those numbers were right. So, that's the average. Well, if we were tithing, right, if all of us tithed according to the survey, um, and we all made a million dollars, we'd bring in 100000 So, if my math was right, and I didn't confuse you more, let's go with that. Let's assume, though, that we're an above-average church. I think in a lot of ways we are, and honestly, in our giving, I think we are above-average, considering our size. But if we assume that we're above-average, and we give 5% of our income, let's just assume we're twice as good as every other uh, church out there, and we give 5% of our income, well, that's the bad news. We're only given 5%. But you should be able to hear the good news already. If everybody gave 10%, if everybody tithed, wouldn't that double our income? Right? If we all give 5% and then we all gave 10%, that would, that would double, if that were the average. And if, and if we did that, Right now, we would have a surplus of $200,000 in our account based on our current spending. Not based on our budget, but on, based on our current spending. On average, according to the survey, if everybody tithed, if we are an average church. So the, the bad news is that according to the survey, we give about 2.4%. But the good news is that every penny we need to do all the ministries that we are doing and then some, and, and I'm talking about then a lot of some, that money, according to the survey, is already here. It's just in your, your pockets. So if we were tithing, which I've always heard all my life, if every person in the church tithed, no church would have uh, financial issues. I've heard that, but now the survey's say that. So there's the good news. Those are all of our celebrations. Uh, all the things that are happening and it turns out we have all the money we need. So we don't have any financial problems anymore. We just need to all give it. All right, so go into scripture this morning. Colossians 3, uh, rather 2, uh, chapter 2 verses 16 through 23. We're continuing our series on uh, who Jesus is, looking at uh, Jesus through Colossians. Uh, sometimes they have, uh, Paul has uh, these, these imperatives, these didactic, didactic teaching um, 
passages where he's talking less about Jesus and more about us. But even as he talks about us, we see something about Jesus. And that's what we see in this passage this morning. In this passage, we see what Christ has done. We're going to see, and Paul has said this over and over, he particularly said it in Corinthians in addressing some issues there, and then in Romans, what is his great theological treatise on Christianity, on the faith. He tells us in those passages, that, in those books, that we are not saved in order to be kept in bondage to human traditions or religious legalism. As a matter of fact, his clearest declaration of this was the letter to the church in Galatia where they were putting so many burdens on the church you have to do this you have to do that and you have to do this other thing to be saved and we know that if you've put any have to do's in front of salvation you are either a earning it or b doing it yourself and we know salvation does not come that way salvation comes by faith alone in fact, we were not just not saved in order to be kept in bondage. We were saved for freedom in Christ. There are some non-negotiables, and we'll talk about what that is or what that means in a, in a little bit. There are certainly some non-negotiables in life. We are called to live as Christ, and Christ was perfect, and perfection is our goal. But Christ defines perfection, not us, not a society, not, in this case, the culture around the church in Colossae. And any time we put a burden of tradition or legalism, and this goes all the way back into uh, the, the, the beginning of chapter 2, particularly up to chapter 4, uh, and then in chapter 8, I mean, I'm sorry, in verse 4 of chapter 2, and then again in verse 8 of chapter 2 that we talked about last week, any Tradition or legalism is a backtrack of the gospel. Again, the whole purpose of Galatians. If you are telling people that in order to be saved, then you must be or do like this, then you are taking the gospel of faith and making it a gospel of works. That's exactly what Galatians is telling us, what Paul was telling the church in Galatia. Paul tells us here in this passage especially that Christ has removed those burdens, those, those barriers to salvation. That is what Christ has done. Read with me as we read chapter 2 of Colossians, verses 16 through 23. Paul says, Therefore don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink, or in the matter of a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath day. These are, shadow, are a shadow of what was to come. The substance, the body casting the shadow, is the way that reads, is Christ. Let no one condemn you by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. If you died with Christ to the elements of this world, why do you live as if you still belonged to the world? Why do you submit to regulations like don't handle, don't taste, don't touch? All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish by being used up. They are human commands and doctrines. 
Although these have a reputation for wisdom by promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body, they are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. What has Christ done? I believe we see three, uh, three things that Christ has done in this passage. In verses 16 through 17 is the first one. Verses uh, 18 through 19 is the second one. And 20 through 23, we find the third act that Christ has done. First, He replaced regulations. Christ replaced regulations. He says, don't let anyone judge you. Here's our imperative. Don't let anyone judge you. The next one is in verse 18. Let no one condemn you. Don't let anyone judge you in regard to food and drink or in the matter of festival or a new moon or a Sabbath day. They, the, the Jews especially had all the, the dietary restrictions. They had the festivals that must, have been, must be celebrated in order to be right with God. The dietary laws, in fact, were worship laws. You, you couldn't eat those things because then you would be unclean and unable to come to the temple, unable to bring your sacrifice. Uh, touching the dead body and all these other things that could happen. You had to touch a dead body at some point. If somebody died in the street, you wanted to remove them from the street. But when you touched that person, you were unclean for a period of time. Therefore, you were unable to worship. Dietary laws were the same way. They, they were worship laws. The, the fact is, though, and Jesus says this throughout the Gospels, and Paul talks about it as well, what matters in worship is the heart of the worshiper and the object of the worship. That's what matters. That's what it boils down to. That is what is important in worship. Nothing else. Nothing else takes that place. Jesus is the only focus of our worship. So it didn't matter the, the food they ate, the drinks they drank, the, 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 whether they were celebrating a festival or a new moon, or even if they were worshiping on a Sabbath day. Jesus made that clear when the uh, um, disciples were plucking the heads of grain as they walked through the field and eating them. The, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath, was the reply to they were working on the Sabbath. Well, worship is the same way. Worship, regular worship is important. We as, as uh, believers celebrate on the Lord's Day, not the Sabbath. Yesterday was the Sabbath. Today is the Lord's Day because it's the day He rose from the grave and that's when we celebrate. But even those things, Paul says, those aren't what is important. It's what you are focused on that is important. Paul tells us that Christ has removed those rules of when, where, and how to, how to worship. He's removed them and repudiated them and said these rules don't matter anymore. It's not about the rules in worship. It's about are you worshiping me? Are you, is your heart focused on me? Am I the object of what you are worshiping? That is what it comes down to. As a matter of fact, what, when he's saying, don't let anyone judge you, he's telling them, in effect, also, make sure you're not doing these things. So don't let anyone judge you about your new moons and your food and your all this, that in your worship, 
But also, to those of you in the church in Colossae, don't set up barriers to worship. Barriers to worship for the new disciple and the potential disciple should be removed, not set up. Paul's telling them, look, you've got all these things that you say have to be done to to truly experience worship. And we talked about it a little bit Last week, that, that you're looking for this mediator, this intermediary between, G, uh, between you and, and, and God. Jesus is there, but y'all are trying to add something else, and you're making that a part of your worship. He, he will call it here in, a, in just a second, uh, worship of angels. Now, that, that of, that's a fun little preposition. We're not quite there yet, but I'll, I'll go ahead and explain it to you. He's talking about not when you worshiped, angels but the kind of worship angels do that's what we can worship like the angels is what they were being told if you just do it this way this is how angels worship and this is how y'all worship that's what they were telling them and they are then setting up barriers by saying you must worship this way in order to be a disciple in Colossae Regulations for legitimate worship have become requirements for legitimate salvation. Legitimate in air quotes and literal quotes in my notes both times. If you're not worshiping right, are you really saved? If you're not worshiping this way, are you really saved? If, if you're not fully worshiping in this manner, if you're not experiencing this, what they would have called higher worship, then you really aren't experiencing salvation and i don't so they're creating these barriers and those regulations quickly become barriers to those that would come to christ imagine a gospel that we would preach that would say come to christ and be saved come and fall at his feet and worship him give your heart to him right after you understand how to experience angelic worship the same way that they worship by going through some of these festivals and eating certain foods. Does that sound like the free gospel of grace? Or does that sound like a gospel that requires works in order to be saved and puts up barriers? The gospel is free. We want no barriers. We don't tell people Quit your drugs and come to Jesus. Quit your drinking and come to Jesus. Quit your adultery and come to Jesus. Quit your homosexuality and come to Jesus. We tell people, come to Jesus and give Him your drugs and your alcoholism and your adultery and your homosexuality and let Him take those things. And He will remove those things in His time as He disciples you through other disciples and you grow in your faith. We remove the barrier that says you must be in order to be saved and we say instead you can be saved and God through Christ will make you who you should be. Worship, we're told, is done in spirit and truth. The woman at the well, talking to Jesus, saying, y'all worship at the temple in Jerusalem, we worship at the temple up, at, a, at a building up north, we do different worships. We, we worship differently. How, how are we supposed to come together? Because that's what y'all prefer, and this is what we prefer. And Jesus says, 
Big whoop about your building. Big whoop about your, your, your worship style. The day is coming and is already here when everybody will worship in spirit and in truth. What's the requirement for worship? I think we've proven over this last 18, 19, however many months it's been, that a building is not a requirement. Neither is a specific building. We can do it outside. We can do it in here. We can do it in here when there's not much in here to have in here. We can worship anywhere. Worship in spirit and in truth is the standard, and there is no other standard for worship. There is no other scriptural requirement for what worship should be. Jesus replaced regulations. If he replaced those regulations, then the next thing we see is that he widened worship. By replacing the regulations, he widened worship. Verses 18 and 19, let no one condemn you, there's our second imperative, by delighting in ascetic practices and the worship of angels, claiming access to a visionary realm. Such people are inflated by empty notions of their unspiritual mind. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. Paul says there is no higher worship. There is no form of worship that is hidden or unreachable by the unwashed masses. And I don't mean the unwashed masses of those who have never come to Christ. I'm talking about the unwashed masses of believers who just don't understand what real worship is. There is no higher worship. True worship is defined by the heart and the object and nothing else. You can be worshiping something, the object you could have right, but your heart could be wrong, and that's not true worship. Your, your heart could be right, and you place your worship in the wrong thing, and that's not true worship. True worship happens when the heart and the object are one. And that only happens when Christ is in our heart. That only happens when Jesus is our heart focus, and Jesus is our mind's object true worship is defined by that and with this phrase with this idea that uh this 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 correction from paul that there is no higher worship then worship became more accessible and less restricted we have friends in in tennessee whose uh one of their daughters uh i think she's the the very middle is a dancer and we've seen little clips of her and graceful does not define this girl super tall we've got a couple of them in here i've seen dance the same way long legs super tall and just incredibly graceful and she is part of a uh dance uh, studio where everything is geared toward worship they 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 dance to worship music they they, uh, its purpose is to express their worship through dance. King David would be all over that. Man, he'd be at every recital, cheering them on. Yes, if they say you look crazy, tell them, I can look, more, I can look crazier than this. That's what he said when his wife told him, you were undignified. And his response was, I can get more undignified. You just watch me dance for the Lord. It's an expression of their worship. And, and while this doesn't speak of dancing, and as a matter of fact, it would have blown their minds in, in biblical times to say, you can't worship when you dance. Like, what? 
I mean, because that was big deal to them. But my point is, worship is expanded. Now, no, you can't worship by murdering somebody. That's not worship, okay? It's not expanded that much. It's not widened that much. Again, right, we're talking about the parameters of Scripture. But because Paul writes this and says you can't, there is no higher worship. You can't figure out how to worship like the angels. He has made worship more accessible and less restricted. Now, we all have worship preferences. Every one of us have things we don't like in worship and things we do like in worship. We have never had praise dancers in here that I'm aware of in our church. Doesn't mean they're unbiblical, just means that that's probably not our preference or most of our preferences. Yet you go to some churches down the street and they're going to have praise dancers every Sunday. That's just the way it is. And if you have ever watched someone uh, do sign language to a song you find particularly powerful in worship. Tell me that that didn't move you in a different way when you saw the motions to the song. We just, as Baptists, we don't call that dancing. We call that interpretive movement. Like, literally, it's interpretive movement, right? I mean, they're interpreting, but that's, that's what we call uh, youth choir pieces. And when they, oh, that's not dancing, that's interpretive movement. We have our preferences, but we have to remember that preferences are just that. Preferences. They are what we prefer. Paul's telling the church in Colossae that any focus on my way to worship can actually miss the mark of actual worship. Because my focus is on my way. And what does our focus have to be on? Jesus. So if our focus is on Jesus, we get to actual worship. worship. But if it focuses on my way, then we're not. Worship is defined as ascribing worth. And if our focus in worship is more on the actions of us, of somebody else, uh, of the lyrics or whatever, than on the object of worship, then you are ascribing more worth to the actions of than the object. If that's your focus, that's where you're putting your worth. And then having my way to worship creates, according to Paul, arrogance and an unspiritual mind, an unspiritual attitude. Inflated by empty notions, that's arrogance in verse 18. The unspiritual mind is an unspiritual attitude. When we have our way to worship, when I have my way to worship, and my way is the higher, better, correct form, then I begin to not only look down on those that don't prefer my form of worship, but I begin to see them as less sincere or lacking in discernment when it comes to worship. And then verse 19 Paul tells us that claiming a better worship connection to Christ actually disconnects us from Him. He says He doesn't hold on to the head. He being the one who would say that they have a higher form of worship. He doesn't hold on to the head from whom the whole body, nourished and held together by its ligaments and tendons, grows with growth from God. So when we claim we have a better worship connection to Christ because of our higher form of worship, we are actually disconnecting from Christ in worship. 
And y'all, this is true no matter your worship preference. Whether you believe that what we do now is still just a little tame. Okay, let's be truthful, it's a lot tame. We could crank this up some. Or whether you pine for the days of just a piano and an organ. Either one of those preferences, either end of the extreme, uh, either extreme of the spectrum, and anywhere in the middle can puff us up and become a point of disconnect from Christ. Because that is our focus. It doesn't matter what your preference is. Because preferences, as I said, are just that. They're preferences. And they are not wrong in and of themselves. Thankfully, we've moved on from Halloween, so this whole candy corn debate can stop. I swear I have seen so many posts about candy corn as trash. I love candy corn. And you don't. Great, don't eat it. I don't like asparagus. I'm not eating that. And my wife loves it, and my daughter loves it, and I think maybe Jamie does too, and, and Jade and I are sitting over here, Ugh. We don't eat it. They're preferences. They're not wrong. They're preferences. But preferences be can become the focus instead of Christ. When I tell my family, there will be no asparagus served in my house, who am I thinking of? Me, because I don't want to smell that mess. But we don't have that. That's just my preference. They want to eat it, you can eat that nasty stuff. Throw in some Brussels sprouts if you want them too. I don't care, I ain't eating them either. Paul says that growth happens because of connection to Christ, not connection to regulations. He doesn't un hold on to the head. Well, what does the head do? The head uh, causes the body to grow with growth from God. If he's not holding on to that head, because instead he is holding on to his preferences, his regulations, he is connecting to those regulations, Paul says, and not to Christ. And then he goes on to say, or at least it's understood, that growth apart from Christ actually does happen. But when it is based on regulations instead of Christ, that growth is misshapen and malformed. We can grow a church on preferences. We can grow a church on fluff. I, we, I, can, I can change my preaching. I can, I can quit digging into Scripture and I can give a 20-minute devotional thought and some of y'all are thinking, yes, please. Or just 20 minutes. Doesn't have to be a devotional thought. Just figure out how to do a sermon in 20. I can't. But we can grow a church like that. We can attract a crowd. We can do entertainment one way or the other. Y'all, we can do the organ and piano to perfection that will bring people in because they want to hear it. And we can do uh, the, 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 I've heard this word already, disco on the other end, and we will attract a crowd because people want to see that. But if that is what we are using to attract a crowd, that's what we've got to keep to attract the crowd. And what's the focus? That, not Jesus. So we can grow, but we will have a misshapen and malformed church. 
if that is how we grow, then some of you are already thinking, because I thought it as I was saying, as I was preparing this message too, you're already thinking, then Michael, why do our worship and building styles, our programs and our ministries have to change? Why do we have to change so much if that's not the focus? Well, the change isn't the focus. It's the people. In Colossae, worship had become a test of spirituality among believers. It cannot be that. Worship cannot be a test of spirituality. Worship should affect you. But how it affects you and how that shows up in your person or externally is going to be very different between people. I am not nearly as effusive in my worship as my wife is. That doesn't mean I worship less. I just don't show it bodily the same way she does. Some of you are less effusive in your worship. Some of you are more. Some of you are wishing we'd clap more. Some of you are wishing we'd raise hands more. And, and if that is what you do when you worship, do it. That's what you need to do. But it's not a test of spirituality, so that it can't become that. So why do we change things? Well, one, change removes sacred cows that become barriers and tests or the objects of our worship. Sometimes we have to get rid of things that have become idols. Sometimes we have to make changes purely for the sake of change in order to remove things that have become idols. But what we can't allow to happen, and I'm going to get here in a minute, is we can't allow the new things to become idols in themselves either. Regardless of anyone's preference, nothing of this is an idol. But I don't want to get ahead of myself. Number two, we change worship styles, building styles. We make changes to remove barriers to unbelievers. And that's the most important part, removing barriers to unbelievers. And in truth, I'll say this up front, we believers are supposed to be mature enough to handle that. So what do I mean by removing barriers? I actually had this conversation years ago. I was uh, doing a wedding for a friend, and we were sitting around before or after, I don't know, and I was talking to some people, and, and we were talking about worship styles and those sorts of things. And I, I, they asked me what I thought, and I thought immediately, you don't want to know, but I told them. Our rituals, and yes, we're Baptists, we're not Catholic, we're not Episcopalian, we're not Presbyterian, but we have rituals. Forty years ago, if you went to any Baptist church anywhere in the country, you knew what order was in the bulletin. You knew when the special music was. It was right before the offering, which was right before the sermon. You knew when the invitation was. You knew how many songs you sang. You knew that there was a benediction, you knew, uh, a prelude, and a postlude. You knew what went on in a Baptist church. And every one of y'all who's older than my age or just a little y'all know what I'm talking about. Act, sit there, act like it ain't something when you know it's something. Our rituals, though, are foreign to people who aren't used to church. Our words are foreign. This stuff that I'm talking about, Scripture, to someone who has not grown up in church, never been to church, this is all foreign. The idea that this is a discussion even, like, why are y'all talking about this? Our lyrics and our songs, no matter the songs we sing, whether we're talking about King of my heart, you are good, or... Here I raise mine Ebenezer. 
Either one of those lyrics is foreign to an unbeliever. So, since all of that, we already have a foreign experience in our words, our lyrics, our rituals, our music style, our environment should be comforting. We preach an exclusive gospel. What's a gospel? An unbeliever might ask. We preach an exclusive gospel that asks people to take up their crosses and deny themselves. Does that sound like what the world teaches to you? No, it's foreign to someone who's never heard that before. So we create, as best we can, a modern setting for an old message. And when we do that, that modern setting for an old message creates a space where the uncertain about the gospel, the uncertain about church, may be willing to hear. But in, 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 uh, uh, opposed to that, to demand them to accept our traditions, our forms, and our norms is actually what the Colossian church was doing. They're putting an unbiblical burden on our worship, our ministry, and our evangelism. So we want to create as many opportunities. And let's also remember that our job as a church, and I'm talking about the body of people, is not to invite people to come here to hear the gospel, but to take the gospel to them. And then when they go, that's something I'd like to be a part of. Uh, That's interesting. I'd like to hear more. Come with me to church. And then we have a place where they walk in and they feel comfortable. Yes, they walk into a foyer that reminds them of Starbucks. Good. Because what do they do in Starbucks? They sit down and they talk to people. They have conversations. Sometimes they do work. And they get to have an experience free from things that would distract, free from things that would confuse as much as possible. And maybe, just maybe, when they hear the old message in a new setting, they respond when the Holy Spirit draws them and says, come, this is true. And they respond, I don't understand. Come anyway. But I've got so much baggage come anyway and they hear that message so that's that's why we change that's why we do things differently i'll talk a little bit more about that in just a minute the third thing jesus does in this passage that that paul tells us jesus has done in this passage is that he has demolished dogma demolished dogma verses 20 through 23 tell us that now i need to define dogma for you uh, I think I do, because I didn't know what the actual definition was. I knew how to use it, but I didn't know what the definition was. Dogma is an essential part of a particular teaching. We teach about Jesus. One of our dogmas about Jesus is the resurrection, literal bodily resurrection. That's a dogma. That is, we don't, we don't argue about that. We, we don't waver on that. That is dogma. And what Paul is doing here is he is fighting a heresy. He is fighting an addition to the gospel that is becoming, or maybe has already become, a dogma, an essential teaching in that church. Paul is telling them, 
if you died with Christ to the elements of this world, rather since you died with Christ to the elements of this world, he's telling the cross demolished any doctrine that isn't Christ. The, the, the cross got rid of everything that says, I need some other way to come to Christ. And what has actually happened is in this church in Colossae, the unbiblical ideas of the world had become the standard in the church. This, this angel worship, this worship of angels thing, this hierarchy, this intermediary, that was bleed over from the world that they were a part of. And that has become dogma in the church. The world's views have become dogma. Now, when we talk about the world here, we're not talking about things that the world used and liked. That's not the issue. It's not that they were bringing in worldly things like guitars and drums. That's not what he's talking about at all. He's talking about the ways they thought, their philosophies, the, the things they believed. That had become their, their standards. The world's standards had become dogma in the church. For example, if you think this, you can't be that for some reason. And it isn't unbiblical, these dogmas, this, this creep of the world, isn't unbiblical just because you and I don't like it, but because the Bible is against it. If the Bible's against it, then you and I should not like it. But if the Bible's not against it, then it's not an issue. It's an issue of freedom in Christ, not an issue of rules and regulations. And he goes on to say, why do you submit to these regulations? Don't handle, don't taste, don't touch. All these regulations refer to what is destined to perish. Destined to perish. Things that won't last should not be dogma. Things that don't, won't last should not be an essential part of a particular teaching. These things that we've been talking about, buildings, programs, worship styles, these things won't last. Worship styles have changed over the past 2,000 years of the church. And every time it changes, there is a fight. You should have been there when they went, quit singing psalms and started singing songs somebody wrote. You should have been there the Sunday they added harmony to the songs. Every time. You should have been there when we started singing in Baptist church those radio songs. You know, the southern gospel that our hymnal was full of. Those radio songs. <gasps> those are temporary. Our worship style today, these songs that we have sung and we've learned and we love right now, they're temporary. They're not only temporary for the next five or ten years, they are certainly temporary in eternity because they are tools. They are merely tools. And they should serve their purpose and be seen as temporary. None of these buildings will last. I don't care how much we... We could have gotten five times the amount from the insurance company and not a single one of these buildings will last. You can go to Greece, you can go to Rome, you can see some beautiful structures and parts of them are still there but they're not going to last forever. They won't last. It is all temporary. They are tools. So Paul says, things that don't last should not be dogma because things that don't last don't sanctify. The end of verse uh, 23. 
They are not of any value in curbing self-indulgence. They are not of any value in sanctification. These things are tools that aid in discipleship. They aid in outreach. But they won't make or sanctify a single disciple. But they sure can divide a church family if they're allowed to. They won't make anybody come to Jesus. They won't make a better disciple in and of themselves. They can split a church. Our arguments for our dogmatic preferences, no matter which side of the aisle we're on, like the arguments of the people in Colossae, are often joined with out-of-context scripture, false piety, and man-made ritual. That's what he says right here. Verse 23, they have a reputation for wisdom, but they're promoting self-made religion, false humility, and severe treatment of the body. That's how we defend our preferences when we just want our preferences. The truth is, buildings don't sanctify, worship styles don't sanctify, they can become barriers or they can be broken down as barriers, but only Christ can save and only Scripture is our guide for worship. That's it. Christ is the focus. So if we go to another country, the worship's going to look, feel, sound different. It doesn't matter the country you pick. Scripture actually says nothing. New Testament says nothing of worship styles. It says sing new songs. It says sing hymns, songs, and spiritual songs. But it doesn't say anything about styles. It doesn't say anything about building design. Yet the New Testament has plenty to say about creating barriers to the gospel, adding to the gospel's demands, and creating division in the church over unimportant things, over preferences. Buildings, worship styles, seating, lighting, temperature, paint, colors, comfort, or anything else can each become an empty dogma that does nothing to make disciples and in fact divides disciples. Or each of those things can be a tool used in accordance with scriptural teachings about who and what the church is and what its responsibility is for sharing and teaching who Christ is and what He has done for us. It's a little bit of a paraphrase of our Rebuild Committee's vision statement. Creating a space for sharing and teaching who Christ is and what He has done, and in the process, removing any barriers, but also preparing us for whatever the future may hold. So this morning, what has Christ done? He has replaced regulations, He's widened worship, and He has demolished dogma. What has Christ done? He has thrown open the Holy of Holies, inviting all to come in to worship in spirit and truth. What has Christ done? He has torn down the barrier to God. In the temple, He tore down the veil and said, this is no longer what's important. It is the heart that is important. He now lives in us, not in a temple. He has torn down the ultimate barrier to God, though, sin and provided salvation with no strings, no performance. 
come to Him in faith. And this morning, you can come to Jesus in faith if you've never trusted Him as your Savior. We see Scripture tell us that we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and the wages of that sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. God proved He loved us even in our sinfulness, because even in our sinfulness, He sent Christ to die for us. And there is no one who is outside of the grace of God. There is no one, no alcoholic, no drug addict, no adulterer, no homosexual who is outside the reach of the grace of God because everyone who calls in the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone who has given up their sin before, no, everyone who calls and God will do the work. The saying is trite but true. We're just supposed to catch the fish. God does the cleaning which honestly is my favorite way to fish, hunt, or anything else. We catch the fish. God cleans them. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, you will be saved. That is the Gospel. That is what Christ has done. Let's pray. Father, thank You that You have not only removed the barriers to worship, but you have commanded us not to rebuild them. You sent your disciples into a world that had no knowledge of what it was to worship you. Had no knowledge of what a church would be or, or look like or act like. And you sent Paul who, as he said, became all things to all people. And God, I pray that our church, within the bounds of Scripture and our responsibility, would be all things to all people. And God, that we, none of us, would hold our preferences as idols. No matter where we fall. So that what we did yesterday isn't what we have to do today, and what we do tomorrow, uh, what we do tomorrow isn't what, doesn't have to be what we've done today. That God, we create an environment, a, a, a place where the lost feel comfortable not in their sin, but at least in their skin. They hear the true gospel. They find relationship with people. They find comfort. They find rest. They find peace. They find familiarity in some ways, so that we have the best shot possible to, to preach and share the unfamiliar gospel with them. And God, I know my own heart. I know my own preferences. I know my own stubbornness. And I know that I need your help to live out the very thing I have preached this morning. And I pray by your Holy Spirit that I would hold loosely all these tools you have given us, all these things you have blessed us with over the past 14 months. God, you, you have given us you've given us the top of the line and said, now, it's not yours. Use it for me. God, I pray we would. 
that we would see all of this as your blessing on our church to reach our community in every possible way. Whether it's a Christmas Bible school, hosting a high school choir, taking food to the needy, or whatever else you may have for us, may we use all these tools for your glory, for your kingdom, and trust you with them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So if you've never trusted Christ as your Savior, today is your opportunity to respond, to accept Him, to follow in obedience and baptism, to pray about some things that maybe you need to give to Him, some preferences I need to give to Him, and say, no, not me, but you, Lord. Be used according to His purpose. What is God calling you to now? Maybe He's just calling you to join our church. Be a part of what we're doing here. Become a member. Go through our discovery class. You can share it on a connection card. You can speak with Tom at the connection desk. Uh, Lee in the back. Lee Bird, one of our deacons, would love to pray with you. Whatever your decision is this morning, whatever you need to pray about this morning, I ask that you would spend time as we worship talking to the Lord and letting Him work on your hearts this morning. Let's stand and let's sing, and let's do business with God.